This morning, we conclude our time in the Old Testament prophetic book of Micah. All right, so if you are new to us, is this your first time visiting or maybe first couple of times? Basically, what we do on a Sunday morning is a pretty boring and basic structure, right? You won't see any smoke screens at THBC, right? You won't see any fireworks here in this building. Well, maybe find a word, right? All right, you won't see a bunch of kind of bells and whistles. What we, we do basically every Sunday morning is we, we do what we did already. We, we pray and we sing and then we spend the most of our time, the, 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 the main point of our time, part of our time, opening up God's word and just walking through it. And we think the most faithful way to do that is just by starting with a book and working our way slowly through that book until we complete it. And so seven weeks ago, we begin a study in Micah, this Old Testament prophecy written around 700, mid-700 B.C., all right, so a long time ago. And because of our commitment to the Bible that all of it is God's Word, right, we believe that Micah still has something to say to us today. All right, so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Micah chapter 7 as we conclude our sermon series this morning through the book of Micah. Micah chapter 7. Micah says this, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all, wait in, they all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundaries shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. And from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is like you? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. 
he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So here's what I think is the main idea of these 20 verses. If you're looking for a main point of Micah chapter 7, this is what I think it is. Sin runs deep, so we should weep. But God's grace runs deeper, so we should rejoice. Sin runs deep, so we should weep. But God's grace runs deeper, so we should rejoice. As we walk through this passage, we'll hang our thoughts around two actions I think the Lord is calling us to. So two points to the sermon. Number one, look at sin and lament. Look at sin and lament. We see that in verses one through six. And number two, look to the Lord and have hope. Look to the Lord and have hope. We see that in verses seven through 20. So number one, look at sin and lament. And number two, look to the Lord and have hope. First, look at sin and lament. A lamentation, a mourning begins this chapter as Micah cries out in verse one, woe is me. And this is not a man given to stoicism, the things in life not affecting him. Micah doesn't go around with a stone face, convinced that spiritual maturity means enduring pain or hardship without letting any emotion show and not wearing your heart on your sleeves. You know, sometimes that kind of reaction is presented to us as mature, a kind of indifference to what's going on around us. Resigned to the fact that the world is bad and we shouldn't trip out. But that's not the model that Micah shows us. He feels deeply. He cries out loudly. He's human. In fact, it's rather inhuman when someone is not affected by anything. Or when we don't give them that space or opportunity. It's rather cruel to tell someone to experience life, but to shut up about it. Friends, that's why we aim to be a church where we don't have to wear masks covering up our problems. We don't want to be a church where you can only bring your winning smiles or your witnesses of a triumphant or victorious week overcoming. Praise God for those. But we also want to be a church where you can bring your worries and your woes. Yes, bring your joy so we can rejoice with you, but also bring your problems, your worries, your complaints so we can weep with you. If you've come this morning weighed down heavily by something, let me encourage you to talk to somebody around you about it before you leave. Don't allow weight to stay weighted down in your heart. Trust the people the Lord has given you to carry them with you. Micah laments. He cries out, and not because he has a melancholy personality, and not because he's spiritually immature. Micah laments because of what's going on around him, what he's experiencing. He lets us in on the reasons for his weeping. Look back at verse 1. Woe is me, for or because... I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Micah uses an analogy in verse 1. Likening himself to someone who goes through the fields searching for fruit after it's been gathered, but not finding any. Now, you might think, well, of course you won't find any fruit after it's already been gathered. That might be a reasonable assumption in most lands. 
But that's not how it should be in the land of Israel. Because God has given his people laws that they were not to glean, not to gather everything they possibly could, but rather to leave some for the less fortunate. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. And yet here's Micah going out into the fields, but not being able to find a single cluster of grapes or just one fig to eat. And he likens it in verse two to going up and down the land of Israel and not being able to find a single godly person. One upright person among the people, the godly, has perished from the earth. No one upright among them. They all lie in wait for blood. Each one hunts the other. In Israel? I mean, this is the Holy Land where the Holy God took up residence in the midst of what was supposed to be a holy people. And yet, the land of Israel has become like the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, don't you? We read about it in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. God tells Abraham that he's going to go and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land for their wickedness. And then Abraham starts bargaining with God. He says, well, will you cause an entire city to perish even if you find righteous folks in it? And God said, no, I won't do that. So Abraham says, well, will you spare the city if you find 50 righteous people? God says, sure. Abraham says, okay, well, how about 45 or 40 or 30 or 20 or just 10? God says, if I just find 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will leave them alone. And yet, God couldn't even find 10 righteous people. And here is Micah in Israel saying the same thing about God's people. Not even one righteous person can be found. The language of verse 2 might sound familiar. No one upright. All lie in wait for blood. Each hunts for the other. It sounds like what David said in Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if any understand, if any seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It sounds like what Paul said in Romans chapter 3 when he observed the world around him. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You know, I think one thing this kind of common thread should, should cause us to do is to be more careful in our thinking and more precise in our language. I mean, we often say statements like, things are worse now than they've ever been. That's a lot of subjectivity in that statement, isn't it? Amen. Because when you look through the scriptures, the testimony throughout, throughout all times in every culture is this. No one righteous. Right. Not one does good. Here's the issue with, with saying things are worse now than they've ever been. This is the most wicked generation ever. Folks in Temple Hills are terrible. It locates the problem as being tied to a specific time or place, rather than where the problem really lies, in people in general. It causes you to misidentify things. The problem is with these youth today. These young people don't respect authority. Or the problem is all this access to technology. These screens don't mess with our minds. Or the political landscape, that's where the issue is. Get this person out and this people in, this person in. 
Friends, all those things might be real and true factors, but it misses the larger issue. Evil and unrighteousness is what happens when you turn away from God. In God's presence, there's absolute delight. But away from God's presence, there is absolute depravity. What we see as we look at the world is a commentary not on a specific culture, but a commentary on sin. That's important. Because if sin is the issue, then it's not so easy for you and me to disassociate ourselves with it. We are part of the problem. The problem is not just with them out there, but we get included in it. All of us affected by it. The sin runs rampant and it ruins all people. It turns our desires in on ourselves and turns us against God and others to protect our pursuit of our own pleasures our own desires. And that's what happened here in Israel. As Micah looks around, he sees absolute evil. People looking out for themselves at the expense of others. And as he's done earlier in this book, he finds the leaders in the land to be the poster children for the problem. And look there at verse, at verse 3. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man, or the powerful man, utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. Earlier, Micah talked about the unjust practices of the wicked rulers and the judges and the land grabbers. And here he doubles down on, on calling out their wickedness. They put their hands together to weave, weave a web of injustice perverting justice by seeking payment for it. This is kind of the, the, the absolute kind of demonstration in the Bible of what systemic injustice looks like. It's not on the books, but behind the scenes, all the powerful people are playing together to oppress others. We see that all throughout Micah as he uses these words, oppression in chapter two, justice or injustice in chapter three. And here, all these powerful people weaving together a web of evil to wrap people around it. And they are the leaders. They're supposed to be the models in society, the leaders over it. They're supposed to use their authority to, to build others up. And yet they're using their authority to tear others down. I think you see here a small picture of the vast difference between God and man. I mean, here are these three members of society, rulers, judges, land grabbers, right? They work together to do evil, to, to do evil well, Micah says. It's kind of a contradiction of terms, right? They try their best to do wrong. How different that is from God, where the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from eternity past have planned and performed and applied only what is good. Instead of looking to the triune God as their model, as their guide to rule, these leaders have trusted in themselves and ruled for their own interest and not to image their creator. But the day of judgment has come, Micah says. Their evil has not gone unnoticed. Look at verse 4, or the middle of verse 4. Micah says, the day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come. And now their confusion is at hand. You know, watchmen were the people appointed to, to sit atop a city's gates and look out for danger and to call out or declare when danger was approaching. It's the role that the prophets symbolically took up, serving for the people of Israel warning them of coming danger and, and judgment from God. But the people refused to listen to the watchmen. And so Micah says judgment is at hand. And what does that judgment look like? It looks like confusion. And Micah recounts it in verses 5 and 6. Sin has spread so much from the top down, from the leadership on down, that no one not even those closest to you can be trusted or relied upon. Verse 5, put no trust in a neighbor. 
put no confidence in a friend. And it only escalates. Even guard the door of your mouth, your lips, from the woman who lies in your arms. From your own wife, even, you need to keep a tight lip. You can't trust her. She might use your words against you. Verse 6, children turn against parents, sons against fathers, and daughters against mothers, a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. One's greatest enemies are in his own household. And it's all a result of God's judgment on sin. They would not turn from sin and turn to him. And so he allowed them to turn on one another. Friends, there's often a direct correlation between our vertical relationship and our horizontal relationships. When our vertical relationship with God is good, when we submit to him and trust him, when we love him, we in turn trust and treasure and love the horizontal relationships with other image bearers. But when our vertical relationship with God is broken, ruined by sin, it manifests itself with broken and embattled relationships with other people. I mean, you see it all throughout the Bible. When Adam sinned against God, when that vertical relationship was broken, it fleshed out in a broken horizontal relationship with Eve. He immediately threw her under the bus to take the blame for his sin. We see it with their firstborn son, Cain. When he sinned against God by not offering an acceptable sacrifice to him, it led to a broken horizontal relationship with his brother. Cain is quickly filled with rage and killed Abel. We see it today. A society filled with confusion and corruption, broken homes and rebellious children and unfaithful spouses and scheming neighbors and greedy politicians. We can see it, but do we see where it all comes from? It's a judgment, the bad fruit of a greater root problem, a broken vertical relationship with God. Micah sees the sin all around him, and he laments. That's the proper thing to do when we see sin. We never want to look at sin in enjoyment or with indifference, but with utter disgust. We want to feel the way God feels about sin, the way Micah feels about sin, passionately enraged about it. Now, some of us, have no problem feeling that way about pet sins. But do we feel that way about our own personal sins? When was the last time you prayed a, a personal prayer of confession, confessing your own sins and asking God to forgive you? Do we feel the same level, level of intensity about sins perpetuated against other people? Is there a lamenting over injustices not directed towards you? But very real injustice is all the same, affecting other people made in God's image. In other words, is there a lamenting over all sin when you see it? Micah did. It was in his face and he hated it. He cries out to God about it. He wails, he is distressed, but he does not despair. Because though his eyes see the sin all around him, his eyes are also upon the one who can make all things right. Which leads to point number two, look to the Lord and have hope. Look to the Lord and have hope. This passage is structured as so many others in the Bible are. With something of a gloomy picture giving way to a bright hope. It's a structure we find prominent in Micah. We've talked about this book having three cycles of judgment, but then at the tail end of that judgment, salvation. Micah starts off pronouncing judgment upon God's people, but then salvation from the Lord. And he does the same here. Uh, Micah looks around Israel and is utterly disturbed and grieved by all the sin that he sees. And yet in the next instance, he shifts his focus to look on God to find hope. Yes, Israel is riddled with sin, people from top to bottom doing wrong, looking out for self. But as for me, Micah says in verse 7, 
I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. This is only a statement someone who knows the Lord can make, isn't it? I mean, I think it's one of the unique marks of a Christian. A Christian can look realistically at the world as horrible and as wicked and as depraved as it is, and yet still in that have joy, still have hope. I mean, other folks got to try to convince themselves that the world ain't really that bad. They got to try to force themselves to think only happy thoughts, to convince themselves that there's power in positive thinking. But we can look clear-eyed into the darkness, into the ugliness around us and call a spade a spade and yet not sink into a swamp of despondency because we have hope. But notice where this hope rests. It's not in ourselves. Micah doesn't say, but as for me, I will rise up and transform things. Neither is Micah's confidence in Israel's changed conduct. He doesn't think that salvation will come because people will start acting right. No, Micah's confidence is in the unchanging character of God, of the Lord, this covenant-keeping God who always remains faithful. I will wait on God for salvation. He will hear me. This waiting on God for salvation is not wishing. It's not an uninformed optimism that thinks things will turn out okay. Nor has Micah resorted to empty platitudes saying religious-sounding statements to provide comfort. You know, we can, we can do that sometimes, can't we? To make folks feel better. And don't worry, God's in control. It's going to be okay. God is going to work things out. God is a healer and a sustainer and a provider. Well, amen. amen. But sometimes we can blurt out those things without really meaning them without any real commitment to them. I mean, perhaps you know this to be true in your own life, that we can talk about the Lord better than we actually know him. We can feign an intimacy with God that we've never experienced and yet confidently assure others that they would experience it. But that's not what Micah does here. He knows the Lord. He knows his promises to his people to always be their God, even if they failed him. He knows God's character. He knows God, God's commitment. He knows God's care. And so, yes, he knows life is bitter. So, yes, he knows life is hard. Yes, he knows sin is real, but he knows the Lord is good. Amen. And he knows that the Lord will save. And so he goes to the Lord. You see, many of us have the same issue as Micah. We see sin clearly, sin all around us, sin in us, and we are genuinely grieved about it. But not many of us have the same instincts as Micah. We don't allow the sight of sin to lead us to a savior. Instead, we look at sin and are grieved, and we know we need help. We know we need help. We know we need relief and rescue, but we look to the wrong places. We try to find refuge in our phones or in our films, or in food, or in finances. But it's only in the Lord that you'll find real hope, that you'll find real help, that you'll find real salvation. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to hear that. There is no hope apart from the Lord. The Lord loves you, though. And he's shown that love by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins and to welcome you into his family. He's wiped away all your sins by his precious blood so that you could be his. He cares for you. The Bible is a record of his care. If you are a Christian, you need to be reminded of where you should spend most of your time. Not looking at how bad the world is, but how good God is. Not looking at how horrible your own sins are, but how wonderful your Savior is. We need to adopt the, the practice of one old Scottish pastor who instructed for every 10 looks or one look at yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. 
For every one look at your own insufficiencies and your own inadequacies and your own sins and iniquities, take 10 looks at Christ's sufficiency and provision and his purchase of every sin for you. When tempted to look at yourself, take 10 looks at the Lord Jesus who died on the cross for every one of your sins to purchase your salvation by his death and resurrection. If he gave his own life to save you then, will his saving power end now? Look to the Lord and wait for him. Look to him through reading his word, through prayer. Call out to him in your time of need and trust that God will help you. Michael looked to the Lord and it transformed everything. His lamenting turns into loudly declaring the Lord's faithfulness to rescue his people and to trample their enemies. And I think we, we see that in, in three sections in the rest of this chapter. As we see Micah proclaims, Micah prays, and then Micah praises. First, he, he proclaims. Now look at verse 8. Micah takes on the personality of the city. He speaks as if he were the city of Jerusalem personified. And he tells Israel's enemies to not rejoice or boast. For though Israel might fall, she will rise. Even if they sit in the darkness now, the Lord will be a light. That's why we sing songs like we did earlier, the Lord is my light. Seems to be a reference here to the siege and the coming capture of Judah. And in that way, Micah doesn't deny the reality that God's judgment will still be upon his people. Again, he can look at hard things, but he can look at them with hope. Because God's judgment would not remain forever. The Lord would restore them. He would shine his light into the midst of their darkness. It becomes even more explicit in verse 9. Micah, again speaking as if he were the city of Jerusalem, says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Why? Because I have sinned against him. But Micah here clarifies two common misconceptions about God. One is that God never gets angry. He's only and always love. But Micah says there, there's indignation. There's fury with the Lord. The second misconception on the total opposite spectrum is that God is always angry. He's just forever grumpy and in a bad mood for no reason. But Micah says God is angry because we have sinned against him. God isn't just constantly annoyed. No, his anger is a response. The only right response of a holy God against rebellious creatures that he's made in his image to love and to serve him. But who turned against him. You see, sin is, is never casual. Sin is never harmless. It always does what Micah says here. It always brings God's wrath. Just because you and I don't experience it in the full now doesn't mean it's not coming. Micah envisions God's anger letting out and judging Israel, causing them to be taken captive and exiled because of their sin. But notice Micah says this wrath won't last. It's until, verse 9 says, God pleads Israel's cause and executes judgment for him or for them. Now, Micah could not have imagined what this would ultimately mean. He was just sure that God would one day take up his people's cause. That though God was a just judge who had every right to punish he would come to his people's defense as their advocate. And verse 10 says that, that then the, the roles would be reversed. Israel's enemies, who taken them captive and shamed them, asking, where is the Lord your God? Would see the Lord, Israel's God, rescuing them, while they themselves would be trampled down and shamed. Uh, Micah boasts in what God will do. It would happen in part, when God would rescue his people from the exile in Babylon. God's anger would be quenched, and he would come to his people's defense. But it was ultimately accomplished 
When Jesus Christ bore the indignation of God, although he never sinned, where Micah believed that God would execute judgment for Israel, he had no clue that it would be that God would execute judgment on his son. And God judged him instead of us in our place to bring us out of darkness, to bring us out of bondage to sin and to Satan and to death. So that these spiritual enemies, which like Israel's physical enemies, have long taunted God's people, where is the Lord your God, would be shut up as God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and then rose up from the grave, trampling over all of God's enemies, triumphing over them. And Colossians 2.15 says, putting them to open shame. The same shame, Micah says, that God's enemies would endure here. That fulfillment of what Christ would ultimately do was still 700 years from Micah's prophecy here. But we see it here in seed form. Traces of God's great plan to save his people through his son and to shame his people, shame his enemies. We see that all throughout the Bible. If we have eyes to see it, God's plan of redemption is all over the place. Micah trusts that God would change the course of his people's lives. They would not be judged forever, but would be helped, would be vindicated, would be built up. So the verse 12 says the nations will will not come to shame them and mock their God, but one day all the nations will come to this God to worship him. God will make all things right. What a change. What a change, and only God can do it. And Micah loudly proclaims that God will do it. In the next scene, we see that Micah prays for God to do it, to come and rescue his people. In verse 7, Micah said that he looks to the Lord, confident that God would help and assure that my God will hear. But now he does that in practice. He looks to the Lord in prayer, and we see that God does indeed hear and respond. Look at verse 14. I think we'd be helped if we visualize quote marks around verse 14. It's Micah praying to God. He asks, shepherd your people with your staff the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in the forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Now prayer might might seem like a strange thing to do here. It, It seems like a break in the flow of thought, doesn't it? I mean, here was Micah loudly proclaiming that God would grant Israel victory over their enemies and deliver them. But then he resorts to praying as if he isn't so confident after all. But those two are not in conflict. A confidence in what God will do and praying about it. You know, we often create tensions that the Bible doesn't present. Sometimes we say things like, if God is sovereign and all-powerful and in control of all things, then why pray? But that's never a question that the Bible poses. Instead, the Bible affirms that God is sovereign and all-powerful and in control of all things. And so, pray. The former, the recognition of God's power and his sovereign plans, is fuel for the latter, praying to him. I mean, the better question would be, if God isn't sovereign, if he isn't powerful, is he, if he isn't in control of all things, then why pray? There's nothing he could do to help, but our confidence in God is is in who he is and what he will do based on what he's revealed in his word, and that drives us to call out to him. What God says he will do, we trust he will do, and we pray, Lord, do what you said. You see, God's word and prayer are like two pedals on a bike. We push down on one and lift up on the other, and we push down on the other and we lift up on the other. Right? We read God's word and we pray that God will do what he said. We pray that God will do what he said and we have confidence in his word. Right? The Christian life is very basic. Right? They say once you r- learn how to read a bike, uh, ride a bike, you never forget. And yet Christians always forget what's very simple. Riding the spiritual bike, reading God's word, and praying God's word. 
reading God's word and praying God's word. So if you struggle in pray in prayer, like many of us do, guess what you should do? Pray God's word. Read the word, right? It's very simple, right? We need God's word to remind us of what God has said. And then we use that word, not to kind of put it on the shelf Sunday afternoon and pick it up next Sunday, right? We use that word throughout the week to pray God's promises. Lord, you said you would help. You said you'd be a covenant-keeping God, a, a covenant-making God, and a, and a covenant-never-breaking God. You said that you would rescue and deliver your people, and Lord, we're praying that you would do it. That's how Micah uses God's word. He prays, and it builds up his confidence in the Lord. Micah asked God to shepherd his flock with his, with his staff. It pictures God as tenderly caring for his people, even at the worst times. I mean, Micah's words are reminiscent of David's words in the famous Psalm 23, where David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And then in verse 4, he says that even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for the Lord is with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That same staff that Micah here prays that the Lord would shepherd his people with. And why does he need the Lord with his staff? Because he's in a valley, right? He's in a pit of darkness. Dark days and, and valleys are upon Judah. But Micah looks to the Lord, just as David did, trusting that this God, who is a great shepherd, will shepherd his people, will protect them and use his staff to gather them up, to bring them back. He asked them to, to, to let them gaze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Those are the two cities that were among the, the first cities that Israel inhabited when they came into the promised land. And with exile on the brink, Micah prays that God would watch over his people and bring them back into the land that he first brought them into. That he would restore them after he's removed them from the land. That he'd show mercy to them after he's put them through misery. These are big prayers. These are very big prayers. I mean, it's not like Israel deserves God's favor. Remember where this chapter started off, recounting how utterly evil God's people had become. None righteous among them, but they were still God's people. And so Micah prays as an insider. He prays boldly as part of God's people that even with their sin, God would care for and protect them. Is that how you pray? Is that how you pray? Or do you approach God as an outsider? As if you weren't one of his own? As if he does not care for you? Do you, you allow what's happened this week or this morning to make you feel as, as if God doesn't love you anymore? God has shown you his love in his son and he doesn't kick us away. No one who comes to me, Jesus says, will I ever cast out. And yet we always kind of self-condemn ourselves and stay on the outside. Micah sees sin among his people and still says, I'm on the inside. Listen to how he prays. Calls on God to shepherd your people. Shepherd your flock. Lord, even with all their sin, you are still their God because you've committed to them. Friends, that's how we must pray. That's how we should pray. Asking God to remain faithful and to care for his people, to care for us, to care for this church because God has pledged his love to us and he will not allow his heart to grow cold towards those he has pledged his love to. In verses 15 and 17, we see God respond. God says, as in, in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show you marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall, let, they shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. God calls Micah and Israel back to the greatest moment thus far in redemptive history, to his mighty act of saving the people of Israel from Egypt. And he pledges that he would do it again, that he would display marvelous things. And not only for the sake of Israel, for their salvation, but for the sake of the nations as well. They shall see and be ashamed, and they shall shut their mouths. Reminds you of the things God did to cause Pharaoh to release the Israelites. 
He sent plague after plague after plague after plague after plague, not only to weaken Pharaoh's resolve, but the text tells us in Exodus chapter 9, verse 14, so that they may know that there is none like the Lord in all the earth. God would redeem his people and remind all people throughout all the world that he and he alone is God. He hears Micah's prayer. And he promises that as he saved before, he will save again for their sake and for his name's sake. And what's that lead to? Praise. Micah breaks out in verse 18, who is like you, O Lord? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Is Micah calling to mind God's own revelation of his character. I mean, back in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, God first revealed himself to Moses, and he says this about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving or pardoning iniquity and transgression and sin. It's a wonderful thing to be a recipient, a benefactor of the wide and deep forgiveness of this God, especially when you consider the wide and far-reaching number of our iniquities. But verse 18, while immediately praiseworthy, presents us with something of a problem too, doesn't it? Because there are real sins that have been committed. And as much as it benefits us, for God to just overlook them, to pardon them, would make him as unjust as the judges that lined the streets of Israel. God is a good and a just God, so he cannot just pardon sin. You hear that all the time when you talk to people on the streets. How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, God will forgive me. Well, what's he going to do with all these sins? Well, God will forgive me. Well, that will make God a terrible God to just forgive people. What will he do with those sins of yours? Well, we see. We heard it earlier when Stephanie read Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 specifically, where Paul reminds us of what God's plan was, what God's plan is. God passed over former sins until he put forward his son, Jesus Christ, to offer his life as a propitiation, as a wrath appeaser, as someone who took the full blow of God's wrath and ate it all for us. He tasted death and not a single drop of judgment juice is on the other side for us. He satisfied God's wrath against sinners. And the text tells us in Romans 3, this was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might still be just and at the same time, the justifier of all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Sin must be paid for. It must be punished. But God punished his son so that we could be pardoned. Try you and God's plan from all eternity past. It wasn't some made-up plan at the last minute. Oh, let me see what I got to do now. This was God's plan from eternity past, that the Father would put forward the Son, and the Son would willingly come. He would live a perfect life for us, and he would lay down a life and die the death of a criminal, die the death we deserve to die. He would take upon him the thing that the Lord hates, all of our sin, and he would eat the charge for us. Eat the number, the thousands, the millions of sins for us. He would be judged in our place and experience the wrath of God. He would experience literally hell. But he would conquer it. He would rise up from the grave and offer satisfaction and appeasement for all our sins and forgiveness with God. To all those who would turn to him, who would trust in him. And on the other side of forgiveness, there's no residual residue of wrath. None of it left over. No bit of still being enemies with God. You know how you do it with your spouse? Y'all have a, a nasty fight. Y'all forgive each other, and the next morning you still making faces to her? Right? That's not what God does. He forgives you, 
And he cast them into the bottom of the sea. He forgets them. Right? Look, look what Micah says towards the end of verse 18. He does not retain his anger forever. God doesn't wake up an angry spouse. God is a loving husband who pursues his bride through his son, Jesus Christ, and he loves her, pours out his love for her as he pours out his wrath on his son. And on the other side, there's no wrath for us. There's only forgiveness. God don't hold grudges. He don't delight in grudges. He doesn't feel good at still holding something against you. What does God delight in? (laughs) Micah says he delights in steadfast love and being true to himself. And showing you a love that no man or woman or friend or thing in this world can give you. The unending love of God. Michael lived in a day of sin. But he looked to a God of salvation. He'd seen God saved before. He'd heard what God said that he'd do. He'd bring his people out of, uh, as he did with bringing them out of Israel. He'd show them marvelous things. And so Micah can say with full assurance in verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Just as he threw Pharaoh and all his riders deep into the depths of the sea. That's what God has done to every one of our sins. So why are you still hanging on to him? God doesn't. He's poured them all into the depths of the sea. Just as he's delivered before, Micah says he'll deliver again. He will remain faithful to his covenant with the fathers, faithful to his covenant with his people. Did you notice the the two bookends of this book? We began seven weeks ago in Micah chapter 1, verse 1, reading the words of the Lord to Micah. And we noted that Micah's name literally means in Hebrew, who is like the Lord. And notice how this book ends with this same question. Verse 18, who is like our God? These seven chapters have gone about answering that question with a resounding nobody. There's nobody like this God who pardons sins and passes over transgression. Yes, sin runs deep and so we should weep. But God's grace runs far, far deeper. And so we must rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus, for his life for us, for his death for us, for his forgiveness of us. Lord, we thank you that in him there is no longer judgment. Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts to live for him, to love him. We thank you that Jesus Christ paid it all. Nothing left for us to owe. Let us live with the paid in full marker on our lives and offer that to others. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.